Welcome to 49ers Access. My name is Sterling Bennett, and this is episode 6 of the podcast. Last week, Akash and Avarathan joined the show to discuss the 49ers 2020 NFL Draft class, Joe Staley's retirement, and the Trent Williams trade. Today, we are going to talk about what's next for Solomon Thomas, Project 11, and Alex Smith's career. We'll address those Aaron Rodgers rumors and may even get into why Kyle Shanahan deserves more of the blame for that Super Bowl loss. Joining us today, he covers the Niners for NinersWebZone.com and is the co-host of the No Huddle podcast, Zane Nukvik. Zane, I want to jump right in to topic number one today. What's next for Solomon Thomas and Nick Mullins? Let's start with Solomon Thomas. Drafted third overall in 2017. Got him in the trade back with the Bears, which the Niners eventually got Fred Warner, so I guess that is a a win in the Niners' favor, but the Solomon Thomas pick doesn't look like it's going to be a win when looking at him specifically. They didn't pick up his fifth-year option. They're going to save around $12 million next season by not picking up the option. Uh, John Lynn said that they were willing to bring him back on a cheaper contract, but I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I imagine a three- to four-year million-dollar contract, depending on how well he does this season. And so this is what I want to say about Solomon Thomas, and I'll kick it to you, is that We can all agree Solomon Thomas has not lived up to the hype of the third overall pick. And plenty of people are going to try to compare the picks after him. And while that's valid, I also don't believe that's necessarily fair to Thomas uh, himself. Teams draft based on need. The Niners needed a defensive lineman uh, back in 2017. Nick Bosa wasn't there. D. Ford wasn't there. Eric Armstead hadn't broken out yet. Solomon Thomas, the pick at number three, made a ton of sense in 2017. Now we can argue the Niners could have gone Deshaun Watson, could have gone Patrick Mahomes, Marshawn Lattimore, Tredavious White, but now knowing John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan like to build from the defensive line out, I don't believe the Solomon Thomas pick deserves the criticism it gets, because at the time in 2017, it was the right pick. Would you agree with me there, Zane? I think that they had a certain vision for what they wanted Solomon Thomas to do, and it didn't necessarily fit his skill set. I don't want to say that they set him up to fail, but when he came on, so he came on my podcast, like right after he was drafted and we asked him that question, where do you prefer playing inside or outside? When we heard rumors of Solomon Thomas moving outside and possibly playing the the wide nine that, that Eric Armstead now plays with regard to where they played him, it wasn't necessarily the best spot for his strengths. I I think that he played inside 85 to 90% of the time. And this is coming from his own mouth that he said that he was, he was playing inside that much at Stanford and, to move him to an edge rusher position or the wide nine or whatever they were trying to do with him, it wasn't what he was doing in college. And I think that when you take a player out of out of his position like that, specifically like on the defensive line, those positions necessarily aren't interchangeable. Like you're not going to play like a one tech outside. So I think that they really did a disservice to to his skill set by by trying to do that with him. And and if you look at his film and if you look at where he excels, he actually looks a lot better inside. I don't know if that's where his future lies, if they want to stick him inside, because we've heard reports that he's trying to bulk up. And I think that's what they really want him to do. They want him to play inside and, and be able to have him pass rush uh, on, on passing downs, because really he's, he was a tweener when they drafted him. And he was not heavy enough to play inside to, to stop the run. And he was not enough of a pass rusher to move outside. His, his pass rush rooms, moves were limited. Like, remember, he he basically had one good season in college. Really, the Niners fell in love with the person as well because John Lynch, as we know, took a class with Solomon Thomas at Stanford. And this was kind of a, a sentimental pick. With regard to his future and how he fits in, like, I would love to see him at least get a chance to play full-time inside. I really think that that's where his spot should have been in the first place. But as you said, at the time, they're trying to build a defense and you're trying to build the trenches. We know now that this regime loves to do that. They went ahead and picked Michael McGlinchey and obviously Nick Bosa fell in their laps. And this year, Javon Kinlaw, like there's a trend there. And Solomon Thomas was the first of that trend. So I think that for a number of reasons, to me, the pick was a hard sell because Jamal Adams was my guy. I wanted the Niners to pick him. And I felt like with the the failure at that time of, of Jimmy Ward to step up, there was a big hole at safety. And, and subsequently, Jamal Adams became a really good player. But certainly, it's just really hard for me to see them hanging on to him as anything more than a role player because, A, he hasn't got a chance to distinguish himself partially because they, they played him out of position and B now you've got Javon Kinlaw, who's going to take up sna- snaps and, and be in, on the inside and be a fixture, hopefully for years to come. The wide, uh, the widely popular word to describe Solomon Thomas is bust. 
third overall pick. He hasn't lived up to that potential. We'd all agree with that. Uh, he, he's not even a starter on this defense. He's kind of the forgotten man uh, you know, in the defensive rotation. And so I want to ask you this. If the Niners had a chance to redo that 2017 draft with no knowledge of what 2020 looks like, of, of their playoff run last season, do you believe they still pick Solomon Thomas at third overall? Man, that's such a loaded question because we remember that Jimmy got traded later on that year too. So it's like, do you draft Deshaun Watson or Mahomes or do you go Jamal Adams or do you go Marshawn Lattimore? I really, I really believe that if they had a chance to do it again, they probably draft Jamal Adams. Like that was like, there's still basically year to year at the safety position with Jimmy Ward. They signed him to another one year contract. And after this year that that position is vacant. And if you drafted Jamal Adams, like that's like a five-year starter right there for you. So I think that in my opinion, they probably would have gone with Jamal Adams, but we didn't know what was going to happen later on that season with Jimmy, Jimmy Garoppolo being traded to the Niners. We didn't know what was going to happen with Nick Bosa eventually falling to the Niners. And now Javon Kinlaw filling out that the hole that DeForest Buckner has left. Really, it's so hard to say, but it's clear that Kyle and John Lynch have a specific way they want to build the roster. And you saw this year with the way that they handled the draft, like they traded down, they got Javon Kinlaw and they left a few receivers on the board and they drafted Brandon Ayuk and they clearly have Lynch and Shanahan guys. Like I, I truly believe that John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan operate much in the same way that they have guys that fit their schemes and fit their respective systems on the offense and defense side of the football. And Solomon Thomas was one of those guys. And that's why they drafted him just like this year. Javon Kinlaw was one of those guys. It was just filling DeForest Buckner's hole. It was being able to draft a guy that fit the scheme, fit the personality of the team, and was uh, a high character guy on and off the field. Same goes for Brandon Ayuk. Like that's a, that's a scheme fit. That's why they were so high on him. Like he's basically like a Debo clone. And I think that that's the way that they approached the draft. And it started with Solomon Thomas. Now I will say that that's a huge, huge miss that they have. You can't miss on the top three pick. If you're building a team that the way that they were trying to flip a roster in two years, you have to be able to make the most of those those chances that you get in the top five. And they got very fortunate that Jimmy Garoppolo kind of fell to them with the New England kind of fallout there with John Brady and ownership feuding. And Jimmy Garoppolo was a collateral damage and he ended up here. So I, I will say that they're very fortunate that both of those first round misses that they've had in Solomon Thomas and Ruben Foster did not come back to bite them as bad as they would have if they if, if the whole thing with Jimmy didn't happen. Yeah, it seems like San Francisco, despite the the failures they have, that being drafting Solomon Thomas and Reuben Foster and many other things they've done uh, with this uh, the, the Lynch and Shanahan regime, it seems like things always seem to go right. Something always seems to come in. The Jimmy Garoppolo trade, Jimmy Ward stepping up this season, Emmanuel Mosley playing fantastic, um, Fred Warner becoming a star linebacker, things to make up for the mistakes they have made. But you mentioned Javon Kinlaw and... One thing that I've noticed, and you know, you know, the Niners fell in love with Solomon Thomas's character, and uh, Akash Anavarathan told me that Javon Kinlaw's story, his character, was one thing the uh, the Niners loved. Uh, do you think there is a lot of similarities in between uh, Thomas and Kinlaw, and the reason why the Niners picked him? But also, is there fear that Javon Kinlaw could be the next Solomon Thomas? So there's there's two aspects of it here. There's the character aspect and there's the performance aspect, right? So let's let's look at the character aspect first. If you haven't heard by now, Javon Kinlaw's story is that uh, at at one point in his youth he was homeless, um, had to walk over dead bodies to get to school and 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 back, and he eventually blossomed into what you see now. He was able to to overcome that, get to college, become the player that you see now, and get drafted into the NFL, which is a great story. Solomon Thomas, it's it's well chronicled uh, about the the stories of a mental illness in his family and and the things that he's had to overcome and the fine young man that he is. Again, I, I had a chance to talk to him and and he's an A plus person. Now the cautionary tale here that we that we have is that the 49ers do tend to fall in love with guys' character and it doesn't always work out. But I do want to point to you that Ruben Foster's character was less than stellar, but they still fell in love with him and it still didn't work out. So it's not necessary that you have to have that same sort of narrative follow every single player. But I do see people's uh, standpoint or, and, and viewpoint when they see similarities between Salma Thomas and, and Javon Kinlog. They played defensive tackle. They were drafted in the first round. The 49ers fell in love with them. They, they traded down one pick to get both of them. But if you look at the way that they're built, Javon Kinlaw is physically now – we're, now we're looking at the, the performance aspect of it. He's a mountain of a man. He's about – 40 pounds heavier than Solomon Thomas. He's a little bit taller. He's got better pass rush moves from the interior. He's a he's a defensive tackle. Like you won't see 
Jamal Kinn lining up as an edge rusher. He's going to stay inside. In that sense, they, they play kind of two different positions and, and will have two different roles. But I do see the hesitation that people have uh, when they when they saw that pick. And to me, like I'm not a big fan of create a hole, fill a hole sort of thing. Like they did the same thing with with Michael Glinchy with when they traded away Trent Brown and subsequently drafted Michael Glinchy. That was that was a success. I'm not a huge fan of that. Uh, I think that that's kind of a hit or miss uh, proposition, but I'm hoping that it works out this year as well. Obviously, Kinlaw has the, the cheaper rookie salary with the fifth year option. You don't have to pay Buckner that uh, Aaron Donald type money that he wanted, but. I can see what people's reservations are. I just don't think that he's going to be Solomon Thomas. I think that he's a much better player. If you watch the, the college tape, Solomon Thomas's college tape is it's good, but Javon Kinlaw's college tape is like he's like manhandling guys. Like he's he's throwing guys around. Like it's it's very very good. He's probably one of the better defensive prospects that you would have seen this year on tape. And I, I know that sounds weird because you're talking about guys like uh, Brown and CJ Henderson and all these guys that are coming out. Like, but to me. The guy that stood out the most defensively outside of Chase Young was Jawan Kinlon. That's why I'm okay with the pick. I think John Lynch said that he decimated people. I think I'm okay with the nickname Decimator going into the season. Uh, <laughs> but but going back to Solomon Thomas here is that the outlook is, you know, are the Niners expecting a breakout season and are they just biding their time to cut him? And would it be the worst case scenario if he did break out? They already declined his option. They likely can't trade that contract. Is the worst case scenario Solomon Thomas surprises everybody and has an Eric Armstead style season and they can't afford to pay him? Is that the worst case scenario going forward? No, it's not because I think if he performs well this year, that means the team is also performing well. And that's that's ultimately what we all want, right? We want a repeat performance of the Niners going to the Super Bowl, hopefully this time winning it. And we want them to be able to to perform at the highest level possible. And they're getting, if Solomon Thomas is a role player, and if he's outperforming everything that he's done up to this point, that means that he's having a pretty decent year. Like, uh, I believe Eric Armstead had six sacks in his first three years. Solomon Thomas had the same stat line there. He has six sacks in the first three years. So I'm not averse to the idea of having Solomon Thomas break out for a number of reasons. But we have to remember that Eric Armstead broke out and they declined his option. Same thing with Jimmy Ward. It's a trend that we've seen, especially with this defense, that – if you put them next to guys that excel, they will excel themselves. Like I like to think of, I thought of Jimmy the same way on the offensive side where he's the tide that raises all the boats in the harbor, right? And you kind of have a defense that is very similar to that where you've got a bunch of guys on the defense, on that defensive line that are former first round picks, D Ford, Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, now Javon Kinlaw, a lot of talent there. And I expect the fact they're all playing together uh, cohesively as a unit for another year to be able to help Solomon Thomas too. Yeah, it's hard to you know, root against any Niner, especially a guy who was third overall pick and who's been on this roster and battled some issues that you know no one's really seen and someone who you know, you've watched kind of struggle and not really had a place in the rotation. The Niners didn't know what to do with him. We have seen his snap count decrease every single season, and obviously that you know, is in part because of D Ford's there, Nick Bosa's there now, Armstead broke out, uh, DJ Jones has kind of you know, pushed his way to the front of the line in regards to our run-stopping interior defensive linemen. I look around the NFL. And I see a couple of guys who got their fifth-year options declined as well. And my mind goes to if Dante Pettis doesn't show up, Richie James isn't cutting it, Travis Benjamin, maybe he gets re-injured. I hope not. I'm just saying there's history there. Uh, Trent Taylor doesn't look the same. Jalen Hurd's back flares up. Is there a chance the Niners say, look, we can free up a mill of of Solomon Thomas' contract, a guy like Corey Davis who needs a fresh start but shown flashes, a big physical presence, a guy like John Ross who could you know be a younger possible better version of Marquise Goodwin they're not going to have him pass this season is there a chance they say look we have to move on we have to get a receiver because no one else is working out could the Niners trade Solomon Thomas so the interesting thing about that is you you have to have a taker and I, I know people love to put these scenarios out that okay well they can trade Solomon Thomas and Dante Pettis for and an XYZ player for like a second round draft pick next year. And it's, and it's fun to talk about, but you have to have a taker. And the, as you said, the problem with Solomon Thomas is that he's not getting on the field enough for people to see him. And you really have to have a team fall in love with him the way that the Niners fell in love with him to be able to take him, uh, basically take up a roster spot while giving up their own capital. So, um, and also knowing that he may be released after this season. So I think that in that sense, uh, the Niners receiving group, it's really interesting because they had Emmanuel Sanders. I think that once he came, it opened up a lot for the, the other receivers. Debo really took off after that. 
Uh, Kittle was playing, I mean, Kittle was playing lights out all season, but he was able to get more one-on-one looks. You saw Kendrick Bourne kind of play a little bit better as well, specifically in the red zone. And I think that when you have a good receiver that can take away the pressure off the other guys, it, it makes a lot of difference. And the thing with Corey Davis and John Ross is I'm not sure if they're that guy. I'm not sure if they're the guy that can basically take coverage away from Ayuk and Debo and let them do their thing underneath. Uh, I'm not sure if they're they're going to command that sort of respect. The guy that I would be more interested in out of those two would be Ross because he does have that deep speed. Now, keep in mind that the Niners passed on uh, they passed on Jerry Judy and, and C.D. Lamb early to to take uh, Ayuk later on in the first round. But to me, Sterling, I really felt like they were they were targeting Henry Ruggs because they were basically at number thirteen until Ruggs went off the board ahead of them. And that's when they traded out. Like, I really feel like despite the fact that Kyle said that Ayuk was, was ver- worthy of being picked at 13. I really think that rugs was their guy and that they want, they really wanted rugs to follow them. And if he didn't, that they were going to trade out and Ayuk was kind of like the next, um, the, the top of the next tier. So they clearly value that speed right now. You don't have that guy on the offense. Marquise Goodman was there, but he got hurt. And, to be honest, Sterling, Marquise Goodman, whether he catches it or not, he probably runs under that ball in the Super Bowl. He probably makes that catch. So you have to be able to have that element to be able to open guys up underneath and be able to take the top off defenses. Like I think that if you have a guy that can at least stretch the field and it opens up things for Kittle underneath or it can open up things for Debo underneath or it can up things for, for Ayuk underneath, like you can't just be playing in a 15-yard box all season. And it doesn't help Jimmy that you have to do that. You're having to scheme a lot of guys open. You're having to have a lot of timing throws. And you see what happened last year where there was a, there were a lot of timing throws that Jimmy made and the timing wasn't right where it was either incomplete or it was picked off by a guy because Dante Pettis, for example, in the Pittsburgh game, like Minka Fitzpatrick got in there because he ran a shallow a shallower slant than usual. So things like that, they, they make a difference. And if you have a guy that's fast enough to take double coverage with them over the top or at least take a corner out of the play – you can get a guy underneath that can run into the spot that that corner vacated. But I don't think – I think that they're pretty set with what they have. I think that they want to give Dante Pettis another chance. He really did show some promise in his first year. And uh, I, I just I just think that they're happy with what they have. It's not like the Niners need this superstar deep threat that can go up and get it every single time. They just need someone like a Marquise Goodwin who, you know, obviously they're paying him maybe a little more than they wanted to. He got traded to Philadelphia. But someone who can be a little cheaper – uh, and can be the fourth, fifth guy, but when he's on the field, the defense has to kind of circle him and say, look, we can't let this guy go over the top and beat us, and you, like you said, it opens up things for Kittle, uh, Debo, KB, uh, and even Ayuk, and even, even the running backs. Jimmy loves to little dump out routes you know, behind the line of scrimmage, run 15 yards for a first down, and it's, it's something that this Niners team lacks. They lacked it last season, but moving to Nick Mullins, what are the Niners doing with him? Is he going to be the backup for one more year because he knows the system? He's shown some success in the system. Or are they looking to trade him? The, the deal with Nick Mullins is he's on an undrafted free agent contract. In the NFL, if you can get anything out of those guys, like whether it's like a backup spot or, or a, a role player or even a starter and like the Niners have with, with Matt Breida before he was traded, I, I think it's it's gold. And I think that they understand that. It's not so much a knock on on Jimmy as as an appreciation for the contract that Nick Mullins is on. Like I don't think Nick Mullins will be with the 49ers after this year. Somebody's going to sign him up. They'll sign him to a bigger a bigger deal. They'll recognize the talent. Now, mind you, Nick Mullins, I, I don't think he's better than Jimmy Garoppolo by any stretch. And you see you see the arguments on Twitter about whether Nick Mullins can come and start and do the same thing that Jimmy did. But I, I think that he's a serviceable backup. I think that he's a guy that can win you one or two games uh, if you need him to. And that's essentially what you want in the NFL. You want a guy that can come in for your starting quarterback and win a couple of games if you need to, um, to finish off a game or win a couple of games if your quarterback can't play. And Nick Mullins can do that. He's proven that. And the Niners recognize that. And I think that it's also an indication that CJ Beathard is basically kind of on, on his last legs with the Niners, that they wanted him to be that guy, that, that backup quarterback. They drafted him. That was one of Kyle's picks. And he was never really able to get to that level that they wanted him to get to for various reasons. And I just don't think that uh, C.J. Beathard is going to be there because Mullins is, is frankly better. Now, will they trade Mullins? Will they get rid of him? I mean, you look at the the body of work and the tape does more justice to it than the stats do. You know, he had 13 touchdowns and, and 10 picks and he had uh, almost 3,000 yards passing and he went three and five as a starter before Jimmy Garoppolo won four games. Three of them were won by Nick Mullins. So that in itself says that the guy can put up a few wins. And if there's a team out there that's desperate for a quarterback midseason, I think it'll be pretty hard for the Niners to say no 
depending on Jimmy's health and where the season's going. But if they're like four and four, three and five, or something happens and Jimmy gets hurt or something like that, then then no, you, you got to hang on to him. So hopefully they're just going to go off of what they've seen on, on tape. And that's pretty solid stuff. So I think that there'll probably be some teams making calls. It's up to John Lynch whether he feels like the compensation is going to be worthy of what, what they're going to get for him. Now might be the best time to transition from a current Niners quarterback to a former Niners quarterback. Uh, Project 11 came out last Friday, of course. It's about Alex Smith. If you don't know, it's an ESPN documentary that aired last Friday. It told the story of uh, former 49er quarterback Alex Smith and his recovery from a, his gruesome leg injury. Uh, if you don't know, uh, he, he injured his leg in 2018. He was a part of the Redskins. and just you know, He had to undergo 13 surgeries due to an infection and almost made him lose his life and his leg. It's just something that... You never wish upon anybody, and when you hear about it and when you watch it, you just kind of shake your head and you say, you know, how grateful am I to not have to go through that? He couldn't walk uh, unassisted for 237 days. Uh, the doctors had to move his calf muscle to the front of his leg so he could move, and guess what? He's trying to play football again. But before we get into Alex Smith and your reaction to Project 11, I want to read something off here, and that's the comparison between Joe Theismann and Alex Smith's injury. There's so many coincidences that it just makes you wonder if something supernatural wasn't going on there. And, you know, they both broke the right to, the right tibia and fibula. Happened on the exact same day, November 18th, uh, but obviously years apart. Both happened with the Redskins, both in Washington, D.C., on the 39-yard yard line. The final score on both games was 23-21. to 21. Uh, The injury was caused by uh, both of them were three-time defensive player of the year, Lawrence Taylor and J.J. Watt, and uh, both their Pro Bowl left tackles were out of the game due to injury. Trent Williams, obviously being a Niner now, was the left tackle for Washington. You know, knowing all those things, uh, Zane, I want to ask you, you know, what was your first reaction to Project 11 and the Alex Smith recovery story? My first reaction is that Alex Smith, really, I, I don't know what he did to deserve so many bad breaks that he's gotten in uh, in his career. I mean, I think that I'm a big Alex Smith fan. I, I always have been uh, and I always will be. And the character of this guy, I, I I cannot think of any other NFL player that has such such high character and is just just a super nice guy and just such a good teammate. I, I can't think of any other guy that's like that. Like Alex Smith, since he got drafted in the league, he's just been the nicest guy. Like he's never complained. Uh, Mike Nolan, as we knew, as we know, threw him under the bus when he when he hurt his shoulder, um, and and uh, never complained after that. Seven offensive coordinators in seven years never complained. The fans were on him, and he never complained. He gets benched for Colin Kaepernick, even though he has he was having statistically a better season than Tom Brady at the time. Never complained. Traded to Kansas City. He knows he's a stopgap. They draft Mahomes. He doesn't complain. Takes Mahomes under his wing, then goes to Washington, and this happens. I mean, the guy never complains. Like he's always got a positive attitude. He's always got a positive outlook. I'm a huge Alex Smith fan. He is just. So the, the whole story, his whole career has been so inspirational to me. It's like, man, like this guy's had so many bad things happen to him and he's never, he's never once complained about it. He's never once looked down upon his, himself and, and gotten down and this leg break happens and, and it's a terrible injury. And for those of you who haven't seen it, just Google a picture of Alex Smith's leg and you'll see the severity of this injury. It was one of the most gruesome things I've ever seen in my life. And the fact that this guy is actually trying to make a comeback at this stage in his career, mind you, he's at the tail end of his career now. He's not a 25-year-old man anymore. He's in his mid-30s. Like He's basically closer to retirement than he is a comeback. And the fact that he's trying to make a comeback and mount this this whole thing is is so inspirational to me. Um, they, they detail him and his wife going through this and the surgery and the recovery and and subsequently the rehab on it. I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but it's it's a really, really good watch. Whether you're an Alex Smith fan or not, I think that it provides insight into who this guy is and who he's been all along. Like, frankly, for those of us who have followed his career all the way through and who have appreciated what he's brought to the table, I think that many people would benefit by taking that same sort of attitude. Like, uh, certainly, I want to ask you, like, I mean, were you an Alex Smith guy when he was here? Like, when he was with the with the Niners and, and kind of struggling before Harbaugh got here, did you kind of turn your back on him or were you kind of just like, okay, he needs a shot? So that was, what, 15 years ago? I think I was eight years old. It's hard to say because of all the struggles he had to go through, the shoulder injury, not having the coaching staff, and we're kind of getting into my next point here is that you know he was kind of set up to fail in San Francisco, and that's not obviously planned, but you know I think it was like seven different offensive coordinators, five different head coaches, or something along those lines. It, it's until Harbaugh got there, Alex Smith had no chance to succeed. 
He had Arnaz Battle to throw to. Uh, he didn't have anybody. And even in his prime in San Francisco, he had Michael Crabtree, who who wasn't really a, a first-round talent, and, a, and an older, kind of past his prime, Randy Moss. Obviously, they had Vernon Davis, but he never had the tools to succeed in San Francisco until Harbaugh got there. And even when he got there, it was really just Frank Gore, Vernon Davis, and you know that's kind of it. Uh, so I would say, yes, I was an Alex Smith guy. Obviously, I appreciate him more looking back uh, at his career in San Francisco and, and knowing the, the stability he did bring uh, for about six to seven years in San Francisco. And obviously, he carried us into the Kaepernick era. Then someone like Alex Smith is, you don't appreciate him when you have him. And then you look back and you say, you know, this guy actually wasn't that bad. And that's something I had to do because I was only eight years old when he first came in the league. And, you know, I was more caught up in, in wins and losses. I'm like, wow, this guy stinks. You know, he, he's losing record every single year. He's not that good. And Alex stuck through that. There was a story uh, in the documentary where, you know, after his multiple surgeries, after the doctor said, you may lose your leg. And, you know, there's a possibility that we cannot save you. Uh, he looked over at his wife and he said, do you know how many people would love to have my life right now? And that just shows you the character of Alex Smith that, you know, no matter how hard it got, his attitude never took a negative hit. He always has an outlook on life that I think, and you even said this, that people should have. That, you know, no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to have a positive attitude. And that's, in my opinion, that's what makes Alex Smith not just a great quarterback in my eyes, but also, you know, one of the better guys in the NFL. And, you know, it's hard when you look back, but, you know, looking back at Alex Smith, one of the biggest things is the 2005 draft. Aaron Rodgers was there. Alex Smith was there. And obviously Aaron Rodgers is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Now, this isn't going to be a, you know, why Alex Smith is better than Aaron Rodgers. But uh, I would like to think that Alex Smith, when he got a stable head coach and a semi-stable front office in Trent Baalke, uh, that, that Alex Smith's numbers weren't you know, that far off from what Aaron Rodgers was doing. Obviously, Rodgers got the the championship uh, in 2010, right before the Niners kind of started their peak upwards, and we all know what happened with the Kaepernick game there. But comparing Rodgers to Smith, when Harbaugh came in 2011 up until 2018 prior to the injury, Smith had a better record, 75-35-1 and and compared to Rodgers' 73-37-1. Alex Smith had a .3 worse uh, comp percentage Obviously, the yards, there's 6,000 yards separate them. TDs aren't comparable, but he had the same amount of interceptions, uh, one less playoff appearance, and, of course, Rodgers won two MVPs. But when I look at that, I say Alex Smith, when he got stability, which is what Rodgers has had the majority of his career, he was a good quarterback. He was one of the top 15 best quarterbacks in the NFL. And so I want to ask you, looking back at, at Alex Smith's career, knowing that once he got stability... You know, he was a solid quarterback, whether it was in San Francisco or Kansas City and in, in Washington. Do you think people can appreciate Alex Smith more so now because of the documentary, because of what we know about his character and the way he was during stable times in the organization, that Alex Smith was worth that number one overall pick? So you very rarely see where a number one overall pick or a guy that's picked like top three kind of struggles his first six or seven years and then somehow like in his eighth year figures it out and ends up putting together like there's basically two halves of Alex Smith's career is the first half and the second half and then the second half of their career they put it together and their career takes off so to speak so you 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 rarely see that happen so that in itself is kind of remarkable but the whole Aaron Rodgers versus Alex Smith thing like when it happened I remember that day specifically I remember okay Aaron Rodgers is there he's a he's a local product he's been a Niners fan his entire life and it's going to be Aaron Rodgers. Then they call Alex Smith. And I was like, what? And I, I remember that uh, he had a, a ridiculous last season at, at Utah and they went undefeated and, and he had a, a, you know, he had really prolific numbers there. And I, I, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm not really as hot on this guy, but let's, let's give him a shot. And then we all know what happened. I think they're kind of unfairly tied together. And the reason is because you have a situation where the Niners fell in love with Alex Smith. Mike Nolan fell in love with Alex Smith because Mike Nolan's, I would say his ego didn't want to be challenged by Aaron Rodgers. We know how Aaron Rodgers is, right? We know how he carries himself in terms of being uh, borderline kind of cocky and arrogant, but not really crossing that line. And Mike Nolan, in my opinion, and and to my knowledge, uh, he didn't want to be challenged in his authority. And he wanted last say in, in basically everything, right? He was the general manager at the time. So he didn't want to deal with Aaron Rodgers. And I believe there's a story that came out way back when that, 
when Aaron Rodgers was doing his workout, Mike Nolan wanted him to do a certain drill, and Aaron Rodgers kind of scoffed at it, and that's kind of what turned him, turned him off to Aaron Rodgers, and that was totally unfair to Aaron Rodgers and, and uh, a total disservice to, to what he did. But that being said, tying them together, I know that people want to do that because that would have been the pick, but really, would Aaron Rodgers have done any better in San Francisco than Alex Smith? Would he have excelled any, any more? Like, look... You're talking about receivers, and I'm naming guys off the top of my head like Jason McAdley, Cedric Wilson, Arnaz Battle, uh, a washed-up Johnny Morton, Ashley Lalee. These were the guys that, that Alex Smith was having to throw to. Vernon Davis before he when he was a head case. Like this, this was not an offense. This was not an NFL level offense. They were consistently getting blown out. Like I was watching Frank Gore highlights the other night because he obviously signed with the Jets just recently, and they're showing all his highlights. And like there are games when the Niners getting blown out, like in Washington, it was like 52 to 20. And like Frank Gore is like running for touchdowns and stuff. I'm like, wow, that was the 49ers in the mid 2000s. Like no quarterback would have succeeded there, whether it was Aaron Rodgers, Alex Smith or somebody else, because the organization itself was broken. And when you look at Alex Smith's career, look at what he did in Kansas City, because he got a competent coach with a really good roster and a really good scheme. And he absolutely shredded everybody. He was unbelievable in Kansas City. He went 50 and 26 in Kansas City. He he completed 65% of his passes. He threw 102 touchdowns to 33 interceptions. That's ridiculous. He had great numbers in Kansas City only to get uprooted there. And Patrick Mahomes was like the next big thing. And Alex Smith was gone again. Like he is one of the most underappreciated NFL players that I've ever seen. It's hard to say who's been better between Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers because Aaron Rodgers has had much more stability and better weapons in his career. Has Alex Smith done more with less? Yes, absolutely. I, I will say that. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. No one likes the the non-flashy guys who are kind of the workhorses until they're gone. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing with Alex Smith. But uh, let's talk about Aaron Rodgers. Let's talk about these ridiculous rumors that I think that Aaron Rodgers could be a 49er in just a few years. Uh, the Packers drafted Jordan Love in the first round this year. We're one game off the number one seed. Obviously, I think there's a big gap in between San Francisco and Green Bay. But they didn't add a receiver in the draft. I think the, the last receiver uh, they drafted was in the McCarthy era, like in year three. And it was like a fifth round pick or something like that. Uh, he's never had a first round receiver to throw to. And I think that's a big disservice to Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, they've been really good for a long time. So maybe their uh, receivers weren't there to pick in the, the late 20s, early 30s. But, you know, Brett Favre came out. We all know Brett Favre's story being one of the greatest Packers of all time, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And we all know how he left going to New York and Minnesota after retiring 70,000 times. But, uh, he said he thinks Rodgers is going to finish elsewhere. And you know, that kind of spurred the speculation as to, you know, maybe that's possible. And I think Mike Florio, despite how you feel about him being a Niner hater, uh, he definitely has some sources around the NFL. Uh, he kind of ran with that and said, hey, look, you know, the Niners could be a suitor here. And Grant Cohn also piled on, you know, he maybe not be the, the biggest Jimmy Garoppolo fan uh, on Twitter, but, you know, he also said, hey, you know, Aaron Rodgers may be better than Jimmy Garoppolo in, in a few years. And, you know, then NBC Sports ran with it, saying 2021 is the perfect time for the Packers to trade Aaron Rodgers. The cap hits lower. My my question to you is: Does that really make any sense to you? No, because the thing the thing that we have to realize is that if you make that move, just like the Tom Brady move, if you make that move, that's contrary to everything that you've been doing now, which is trying to extend this championship window for as long as possible. If you make that move, then you are basically saying that our championship window is two years, and after that we're basically going to blow it up and try to start over again, which means that all of the the cap maneuvering that Parag has done, all of the draft picks that they've been trading up for, trading back for, all the young guys that they're trying to develop, none of that really matters because then you're just going all in for one year. And I don't think the Niners are that, are that type of team. The, the most win-now move that I've ever seen them make was the Emmanuel Sanders trade during the middle of the season. I never would have thought the Niners would have done that, would have done that a few years ago, but they saw the opportunity and they pulled the trigger. That was very on Niners like of them because they typically don't make those middle middle of the season trades and and they did it this year so I think that that's the extent of what you're going to see for a win now move that's that's as far as you're going to see them go I don't think 
Now, this is assuming that Jimmy keeps growing and doesn't regress and, and still is able to to continue and, and get better. The guy's not even 30 years old. Like, you don't, I don't think you give up on the guy. He went to the Super Bowl this year, and people say that, yeah, like the defense carried him. But you, if you go back and look at the way that Jimmy Garoppolo played this year, specifically after Quan Alexander went down and Juhoski Tart went down, and the defense was basically running on fumes for half the season, he carried the team for half a season. Like he had four fourth quarter comebacks this year and all of them, like he was making elite level throws. And that's what you're looking at when you're looking at Jimmy Garoppolo's potential. It's not the, oh, he threw so many bad interceptions or he's missing open receivers or he overthrew Emmanuel Sanders in the Super Bowl and he wasn't seeing guys, he wasn't seeing the field. Well, it's not that. It's the elite level throws that he makes. That's that's what attracts you to Jimmy Garoppolo. And if you believe in that enough, then you don't make this trade. You don't, you don't acquire Aaron Rodgers, whether it's a trade free agency, whatever it is. I, I think that, first of all, like Mike Florio loves to pile on with the 49ers. I, I, he gaslights the fan base, and he knows he can do that so he can get clicks for his website, which is genius, by the way. But, I mean, I don't really buy into much of what he says because a lot of it is speculation. And we don't know what's going to happen with Jimmy Garoppolo. We don't know how he's going to perform. And as as an aside, Sterling, I do want to say that one of the most frustrating parts about losing the Super Bowl, watching them lose the Super Bowl, was that all of these questions about Jimmy Garoppolo and what they're, what they're going to do and Kyle Shanahan salting away a game and like all these things that all goes away. If you win that game, like nobody's talking about Jimmy Garoppolo is a Super Bowl MVP. If they win that game, I think it's, we can all agree on that. And all those questions about whether he's the guy, whether they want to stick with him, whether they want to go with Tom Brady, all that goes away if you win a Super Bowl. So to me, there are many frustrating things about the Super Bowl loss, but this is probably the most frustrating thing is that they had a chance to put all these rumors to rest by winning that game. And and they didn't. So now you have to deal with the backlash. And I think that obviously the the next big quarterback name like now is Aaron Rodgers. It's the next the next quarterback will be quarterback X coming to the Niners. And is he going to replace Garoppolo until he wins a big one? And that's the unfortunate uh, uh, a way that things go. And and I think that it's totally unfounded. Like Aaron Rodgers, yeah, like he is one of the best quarterbacks ever. But you also have to look at the, the risk reward. Everything comes at a cost. And if it comes at the cost of shortening your championship window, then then you don't make that move. Looking at Jimmy Garoppolo, he's going to be 28 uh, when, when Rodgers in, in 2021, when Rodgers is 38 years old. And, and this is just my feeling is that Garoppolo still under contract for the next few seasons after 2021 is better or likely going to be a better fit uh, going forward than a 38 year old Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, you mentioned Jimmy Garoppolo not cutting it maybe at a certain time, uh, but you also hinted at the the Super Bowl, and I remember sitting uh, at, at nine five seven the game in San Francisco. I, I was there from six in the morning to two in the afternoon, cutting every interview I could, having ESPN on, hearing Stephen A. Smith, Max Kellerman, whoever it was, saying you know I don't trust Jimmy Garoppolo, and obviously maybe they're a little more skeptical for ratings' sake, and then that makes sense. We all know how Fox Sports and ESPN work; they have to get ratings to make money. But when I sat there and had to listen to it, you know, the the obnoxious takes, because let's be honest here, a lot of people who have those takes don't watch Jimmy Garoppolo's tape like me and you do. They they, they haven't watched every single play of every single game and have a, have not examined the, the great things Jimmy Garoppolo does. And if it's me, I would tell people who think Jimmy Garoppolo isn't a good quarterback, who think Nick Mullen should start above him, that go look back at 2017 when Jimmy Garoppolo came in and won those those six games in a row. Come back in when that team had like no wins and Garoppolo came in and said, look, this is my team now. We don't have anybody here and I'm going to run this offense. They beat the number one defense in the NFL that year with Trent Taylor. Was, was he the number one receiver at that point? And a couple of days ago, I, I tweeted out something and you immediately DM'd me and said, can we please talk about this? And I'll read the tweet off now and it said, if people want to say all of Jimmy Garoppolo's successes because he plays in Kyle Shanahan's system, then they need to blame that system primarily for the Super Bowl loss. And you know, when you did me, it wasn't my plan to even talk about it. It was, let's get into Aaron Rodgers. But since we're here, since you mentioned uh, losing against Kansas City, let's talk about Jimmy Garoppolo for a little bit. And and you know, let's talk about the, the Super Bowl for a, a small portion of the show. And, you know, to me, watching the game, I don't put a lot of blame on Jimmy Garoppolo. I put a lot of that on Kyle Shanahan. I don't think Kyle Shanahan has got anywhere near to the heat Jimmy Garoppolo has gotten. I think a lot of the heat Jimmy Garoppolo has gotten is unnecessary. I think a lot of the play calling was, in my opinion, pretty poor. I think you don't abandon the run in that situation. You're up 10 points, nine and a half minutes left, and you call no running plays until that last drive, what it seemed like, and 
You waste no time off the clock. You give the best quarterback in the NFL, uh, the most explosive receiving core in the NFL, nine and a half minutes uh, to go down and score. But, you know, the Niners had a chance. And I, I don't blame Garoppolo for that. Even Richard Sherman came out today and said, it's not Garoppolo's fault. If we make one stop, then he's heralded as this hero. And so I want to give you the floor and, and let you give your take on maybe why Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't deserve the, the unnecessary claims that have been made against him. All right, buckle up. Here we go. I want to start off by saying the Super Bowl is just a weird game. Everything is weird. The timing is weird. The preparation is weird. You get two weeks. The, the amount of attention that you have, it's just a really weird game. It never turns out the way that you think it would. it's going to turn out. Stuff that's happening all season doesn't happen in the game and vice versa. Like Stuff that hasn't been happening all season happens in the game. And one of those things um, that happened during the game that also happened during the season is that Kyle Shanahan got pass happy. And look, I, I, I want to say that I think Kyle Shanahan is an A-plus coach. I think he's a fantastic play designer. I think he's a great play caller. I think that the Niners don't get to the Super Bowl without Kyle Shanahan. However, the Niners lost the Super Bowl primarily because of Kyle Shanahan. And, I, and, and here's, here's my, my logic here laid out. So Jimmy Garoppolo has certain strengths and weaknesses. We know this. He's had one full year as a starting quarterback, which was this last year. And he's still developing his, his skill set. And Kyle Shanahan knows this. He knows what Jimmy can and can't do. Jimmy Garoppolo is not a drop back 40 times a game and, and sling the ball around the yard quarterback at this point in his career. I want to say the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, in his first Super Bowl, he was not throwing it around the yard. He was a game manager. He relied on his defense and running game to win, win him the Super Bowl. He was not going out there and, and making it a track meet with Kurt, with Kurt Warner and the greatest show on turf. They slowed the game down. They were able to play on their terms. And for three and a half quarters, the Niners were able to do that to the Chiefs. As soon as the Chiefs got close, as soon as that, Ty- that Tyreek Hill play absolutely turned all the momentum to the Chiefs. In the subsequent drive, the Niners are still winning. There's about six minutes left on the clock. I was saying to myself, I'm watching the game at home, and I'm like, look, this has to be your best drive of the game, and it has to end up in points. Whether it's a field goal or a touchdown, a touchdown ends it, basically. Whether it's a field goal or a touchdown, you have to come away with points, and most importantly, you have to take time off the clock. First play, running play to Mostert, five yards. I'm like, all right, cool, great call. Get the clock going. Let's call another running play or a short pass. Nope, next play, I believe that Chris Jones knocked down a pass, uh, batted down a pass. It was to it was to Kittle. Uh, it was a slant play. Next play after that, they run the same play. Kittle's coming over the middle. Uh, the the Chiefs bring the blitz, and uh, Jimmy overthrows, misses Kittle, overthrows Bourne, and it's a punt. It's a three and out. They only took about uh, a little over a minute off the clock. That's where they lost the game. It wasn't on a Tyreek Hill play. It was, it was that point that they lost the game. And because they needed to be able to have a long, sustaining drive where at least, at the very least, you take two to three minutes off the clock at that point. Give your defense a rest. They just got toasted. They need some time to regroup. Nope, they're right back on the field after three and out. They give up the lead right away. And basically within four minutes of game time, the Niners are down. To me, Kyle Shanahan... He struggled with closing games his entire coaching career. Like we all know about the 28 to three. Yeah, that's on Dan Quinn too, but we all know about that. But if you flash back to the season, this past season, Kyle Shanahan tried to lose a bunch of games and he he didn't because either Jimmy bailed him out or the defense bailed him out. Look no further than the game against the Rams where Jimmy converted two third and 16s. Basically, they're throwing the ball every down when they have a chance to go to overtime. Jimmy converted the two third and 16s, and they end up winning the game. The Seattle game in overtime here in San Francisco. Kyle Shanahan basically, like, I'm not saying play for the tie, but at the beginning of the last drive in overtime, basically, like, you don't let Seattle get the ball back. Throw three, three straight times, gives the Seattle, Seattle the ball back. Seattle comes back, comes back and wins, wins the game. And at the time, Sterling, I was saying, I was like, look, I hope that this is not going to come back to bite him in the butt in a game that really matters. And it did in the Super Bowl. I, I put this out there and people criticize me for, for saying that Kyle Shanahan deserves the lion's share of the blame. But look, when you sign up to be a, a head coach in the NFL, like anybody who's in management at any job, when you, when your team messes up, do they pull? does your supervisor, your boss, do they pull the team in there or do they pull you in there? They pull the, the manager, the coach, the person that's in charge. They pull that person in there and say that you're accountable for your team. And fair or not, that's just how it is. People want to point to Robert Solomon defense having a breakdown. Yes, they did have a breakdown. But that being said, Kyle Shanahan, you're the head coach. It's third and 15. It's the biggest play of the game. When they line up, when they put their offense out there in that formation, you call a timeout. They're like, all right, we know what they're, what they're doing now. Let's regroup. We're up by two scores. I'm not going to need my timeouts. 
let's get the defense right, solid, do what you need to do to stop them. Andy Reid, when he was in that same scenario, when the Niners were third and 15, at the end of the game, he called a timeout before that play. And he was like, all right, let's, you know, let's see what they're doing. He knew, he knew that that was the biggest play of the game and essentially it came down to that. And he, and he recognized it. Another thing. So it's funny. I have a list of things. Another thing. So Kyle Shanahan called that play to, to Emmanuel Sanders um, at the end of the game. And we all know that it was, it was overthrown third and 15. Essentially what he did was he put the game on one play. Your prerogative at that point, your goal should be to extend the game as much as possible. You should be able to get as many first downs as possible to give you as many shots as possible to the, to be able to take the lead. Not just like, oh, we're just going to chuck it down the field on a prayer and this is this is our only shot at it. You need to play the percentages. You you don't go you you don't go with that play in that situation. You have to be able to pick up first downs. At the very least, if you can't get a first down, you should make it a manageable fourth down and at least get yourself a new set of downs. And if you want to throw that pass on first down or second down of the of the subsequent next four downs, great, do it. But not on the third down. You can't do that. I've heard people say that, well, it's not Kyle's fault because guys were schemed open. The guy, Jimmy just missed him and this and that. Look, I realize that. I realize that Kyle schemed a bunch of guys open and a bunch of guys were missed by Jimmy. But 100% of quarterbacks miss open receivers over the course of a game. There's no quarterback that's going to hit every single open receiver. We have to realize that. And on top of that, we have to realize what sequence those those plays are being called in. If they're being called in the wrong sequence or in the wrong game situation, or if Chris Jones is coming up the middle and batting every single pass down, it doesn't matter how open your receiver is because you didn't move the pocket. As, as a head coach, Kyle Shannon, you have to be able to see that, recognize that, be like, look, I'm going to move the pocket just a little bit to give Jimmy a little bit more time to see the field a little bit better. I'm going to call play action to freeze those defensive linemen for half a second so they're not rushing with their hands up. they got to keep their hands engaged because they're expecting a run, so that opens up the passing lane over the middle. I'm going to call a screen pass or a, or a dump off to running back, a blitz beat or something like that. Like He called such a weird game in the Super Bowl. Like If you, if you go back and look at Jimmy's four fourth-quarter comebacks, look at the amount of take what they're going to give me throws that Jimmy makes. The short load dump off passes to open receivers underneath. He's not throwing the ball down the field. He's taking what they give them. Why couldn't you do that during the Super Bowl? I don't know if you've ever heard the, the, the phrase paralysis by analysis. That's basically what happened is that Kyle Shanahan got too deep into the weeds, too wound up in trying to, to baby this game to a finish that he forgot what got him there in the first place. It's running the football in short, quick throws to get the ball in Jimmy's hands. He's not a drop back passer. He never has been. If you look at the end of the Super Bowl, it's a carbon copy of the end of the Seattle game where he was being asked to be a statue back there, no play action, no bootlegs, no moving the pocket, basically be a statue back there and try to make a play. And Jimmy's not there yet. So to me, that portion of it falls on Kyle. The execution portion of it falls on the players. Of course, it always does. And obviously the defense has its own part and the officiating was piss poor. So and at, at the risk of going too long, in a nutshell, to me, that's in my opinion, Kyle Shanahan deserves a lion's share of the blame because of that. And it's frustrating that he hasn't taken that blame and be like, look, I should have been better, like maybe privately he has, but publicly he hasn't come out and said like, look, I should have been better. We could have had better play calls out there. We could have had a better game plan. He's basically said that, oh, nobody died and it's not like we blew anything. Those are his public statements and that's where my frustration lies with that. Yeah, I think Kyle Shanahan on uh, Tim Kawakami's podcast had said that there are plays that I drew up, they didn't you know, run as I thought they were going to, but I think one thing, and, and this is you know from myself to even my my angry father after the game was over with, he said, when is Shanahan going to accept that he is not perfect? When is he going to look within and say, I need to get better at some things? And obviously there's been discussions about does he need a time management coach like Sean McVay has, and I think that might be a good idea. But I also think there's no one in the organization that I know, at least I'm sure John Lynch does this, but no one that I know that keeps Kyle Shanahan accountable. To, to some extent, that's not a bad thing because with a mind like Kyle Shanahan, you want to let it run free. You want to let it be creative and try new things. But at some point, you got to say, Kyle, dial it back. We're up by 10. Uh, we, you know, we have some time to run the football. And to me, the, the biggest thing I look at is the biggest play of that game, to me, that stands out is Kendrick Bourne, in the middle of a route, sees that the other, the other side of the field in which he's running to is covered by Chiefs players. He just stops. That becomes the biggest catch of the game in that fourth quarter for San Francisco on the final drive that's a problem you have to look at and say hey Kyle your scheme wasn't working they knew what you were going to do and so with all that being said 
I have one final question. Uh, if Jimmy G can't get it done, which I think me and you both agree that he can, but if he can't get it done, if, if the story is the same old, same old, Jimmy G can't throw to guys, you can't hit open guys, he's the weakest link, let me get your final prediction. Does Aaron Rodgers ever suit up in a 49ers jersey before he retires? No. No, because the Niners will not dole out that contract. They don't have the the cap space to do it. I mean, maybe Prague can do something, but it's not the way that they roll. I, essentially, I, like I said earlier, I'm sticking to my guns and saying that essentially if you sign Aaron Rodgers, you're saying that you have a two-year window. And the 49ers are not about that. They're not They're not about building that way. They have really never been about building that way with with you know the Yorks and Prague and and now Kyle Shanahan John Lynch they're they're focused on building for the future and they don't want like basically what happened to the Rams they don't want that to happen to them um, you want to be they've been sitting on five Super Bowls for over twenty five years now they want that sixth one and they want to be able to give themselves enough shots at, at it to to be able to do it to be honest what I think they're trying to build here is is a situation where it's not necessarily a quarterback dependent scheme. It's like, okay, we could plug any quarterback into here and he's going to succeed. And you kind of see that with the running game and the way that they're building their offense and defense. Like they want to be able to win with defense and running the football and possessing it. They've got possession receivers. They've got a lot of these uh, undersized, not undersized, but like smaller kick returny type rack receivers who are really good with the ball in their hands that Jimmy doesn't necessarily have to, throw to in, in tight windows down the field. It's like, okay, just take a screen and run with it for 15 yards sort of thing. Right. So I think in that sense, they they're making it easier on Jimmy to be able to succeed, but they're also making it easier on themselves to be able to replace him. If he's gone, you can follow Zane on Twitter at Zane Niners. He's a great source for Niners news. He does fantastic work at NinersWebZone.com. Thank you, Zane, for coming on Niners access. Appreciate it. Sterling's do it again sometime. That's all we have today, so don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends there is a brand new 49ers podcast out there designed just for them. Till next time, my name is Sterling Bennett, and stay faithful. Stay faithful.